0: Well, when we planted Sovereign Grace Church, we started the church by preaching through the book of Romans. Now, I'm, I'm loath to go back and listen to that series now, because as you grow and develop, I might not be happy with what I find. I'm not sure. But we started there, and we did so for two reasons. First, we wanted our church to be founded upon the glorious good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We wanted that as our foundation as a church. And second, we wanted our church to understand that this gospel must be proclaimed in all the earth. That you cannot, if you will, divide that rock-solid foundation of the gospel that we've heard from the imperative that we take that gospel to those who have not heard. We wanted our church to understand that. Look at what Paul says about both in verse 1. Paul, a servant, a doulos, a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. We're not apostles. We understand that. He was. Called to be an apostle. Set apart for the gospel of God. This is God's gospel. This is from him and through him and to him. And he receives all the glory. Glory. And we wanted our church to understand this is God's gospel, not ours. This is not a gospel you learn from men at the end of the day. You may have heard it from the mouth of a man, but only in as much as Jesus Christ himself was preaching that gospel by the Spirit through the mouth of that man as he pointed to God's word and exposited it to you. Second, the Lord promised this gospel in the Old Testament. So we wanted you to understand this is God's gospel. And second, we want you to understand it was promised in the Old Testament. Look at verse 2. Which he promised. God promised this gospel beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. He has from Genesis 3.15 where he promised that the seed of the, wo- the, seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. He has had one redemptive purpose. Since then, to send our Messiah, our Savior, the seed of the woman, our Lord Jesus Christ, to conquer Satan and sin and death. Everything you see in the Old Testament is pointing forward to his coming. All of it, through types and shadows, through sacrifices and ceremonies, through the giving of the law and covenants, it is all driving you to the accomplishment, the fulfillment of Jesus Christ. Long ago, at various times and in various ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. In these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son. That's what I want to say is the third thing we want you to understand is this gospel is about God's son. Not only is it God's gospel, not only is it promised in the Old Testament, but it's about God's son. Look at verse 3, concerning his son. Now it's bracketed, by the way, if you look at the end of verse 4. Concerning his son, verse 3, at the end of verse 4, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is about God's son, the law and the prophets and the writings All bear witness to God's Son, and His eternally begotten Son condescended to take humanity to Himself, becoming our mediator, who was descended from David according to the flesh. And our mediator, Jesus, became man to keep the precept of the law, to keep its commands, and to keep the penalty of the law in our place. To take its curse, its penalty upon himself for our law breaking. And our mediator Jesus, after his crucifixion for our sins, was resurrected from the dead by the Holy Spirit. He was vindicated as holy and innocent and undefiled. He was exalted and throned as king. Look at verse 4. And was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. He is Jesus Christ. Jesus, Messiah, our Lord. Jesus Christ and his saving work take center stage in the redemptive story of Scripture. In the whole of Scripture. Calvin once said that all creation is a theater for the glory of God. It's putting God's glory, all of creation, it's putting God's glory on display in a great, like a great theater. We need to understand that Calvin is right, And that the drama of redemption in Jesus Christ takes center stage in that theater. Now look at what Paul says about the proclamation of this message. Look at verse 5. Through whom, that's Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we've received grace and apostleship. Now, when he says we, he's using the editorial plural. Um, He's really saying, I've received the grace of apostleship but he sang it with a we. You guys know what it's like. My wife is very experienced with this use of the word we. What are we making for dinner? <laughs> she says, you mean what am I making for dinner? I'm using the editorial plural, right? We've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith is to obey the gospel. Romans um, chapter 10 and verse 16. They have not all obeyed the gospel. What is the gospel that they need to obey? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Repent of your sins, trusting in Jesus alone for salvation. He wants to read the, the obedience of faith. And Where does he want to do that? Look at the very end of verse 5. Among all the nations, among every ethne every ethnic group, every people group. It's not talking just about geopolitical borders. This is talking about ethnically, linguistically distinct peoples. He wants to bring about the obedience of faith among all these peoples. Why? Ultimately, for the sake of his name. See, the salvation of the nations is his penultimate goal. It's just below his ultimate goal. His penultimate goal is, I want to see people saved from every tribe and tongue and nation. His ultimate goal is, for the glory of God, for the sake of his name. This is a deeply God-centered mission. And that desire forms an inclusio around the book of Romans. If you don't know what an inclusio is, an inclusio I've, I've told several of you multiple times, so some of you probably don't though. And inclusio is like bookends. It's a Hebrew literary device. They would use it, and these Greek speakers would use it as well. But it's like bookends. Everything in between here has something to do with this. So, for example, in Matthew chapter 1, Jesus is declared. um, We say he will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. How does Matthew 28, 20 end? And I will be with you. This whole of this book has something to do with God with us. If you go to the book of Acts... Chapter 1 and verse 3, Jesus went about preaching the kingdom of God. If you go to the end of Book of Acts, Acts 28, verse 30 and 31, you will find Paul is in Rome for two years preaching the kingdom of God. And so everything within the book of Acts has something to do with that. It brackets it. Well, Romans is bracketed in a similar way. He has received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name, for the glory of God among all nations. Now look at Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16. Keep your hands in Romans 1. Look at Romans chapter 16 as he gives this benediction. Now to him who is able, verse 25, sorry, Romans 16 verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings and and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God, notice this, to bring about the obedience of faith. Notice it's, it's to be made known to where? All ethnes, all nations. To bring about what? The obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Here you have an inclusio that brackets this whole thing. Here's what I'm driving about. Paul driving at Paul's gospel motivated and necessitated Paul's missionary work. It is precisely because Paul knew the unmerited love of God in Christ that Paul was compelled, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, to be an ambassador for Christ. The love of Christ constrained him or compelled him. And we wanted sovereign grace from the beginning to know these glorious doctrines of grace. That Paul lays out here for the majority of this letter. In fact, Romans chapter 1 through 11, he's laying this doctrine of salvation out. However, we do not want you to know those doctrines divorced from the missionary imperative. In other words, we do not want our church to fall into the sin that Sinclair Ferguson has warned about. He said he fears, hear this, that too many people. Know the doctrines of grace, but do not know the grace of those doctrines. We want you to know the grace of God and to be compelled to proclaim that to the world. We do not want your understanding of these doctrines to be locked up in some classroom or in some argument on social media. We want the doctrines of grace to be the constant meditation of your mind, the joy of your heart, and the proclamation of your mouth. Think of the good news we have. The Son of God became man. And he lived among us. He kept the law when we failed to. He went to the cross. He died in our place paid the penalty due to us and he rose from the dead conquering sin and death for us and he saved us by sending the spirit to give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe and now i'm his and he's mine think of the good news folks think of this sinners what sin have you committed? What Sin have you committed? Adultery? Pornography. Lost, theft, lying. Disobedience to parents, Disobedience to authority, pride. Shaking your fist at God in anger, impatience. I and mean, I can go down the list, right? What sin have you committed? Yet God didn't wait until you finally cleaned up your act, until you provoked him in him some kind of love for you to send his son. Didn't wait. God loved you before the world began. Because he's love. And he sent his son for you. He decreed to do that before the world began. To save you. To wash you clean. To forgive you your sins. To give you new life. He did that for you. That's the best news in the world. Does there... Is there any better news than that? And here's the thing. My neighbor doesn't know him. My coworker doesn't know him. My, mine does, by the way, just so you know. <laughs> just to be clear. <laughs> my, my family members don't all know him. The nations don't know him. They need to know him. It's no mistake that Paul places nearly 11 chapters of laying out the gospel, 11 chapters of the most exalted explication of the doctrine of salvation in all the Bible in a letter that also functions as a missionary support letter. Look, look at Romans chapter fifteen. Romans chapter fifteen. And look at verse twenty four. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. He wants to come to the church at Rome, but he hasn't come yet because he's been out doing this gospel work from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, and now he's collecting an offering to take to Jerusalem because they're in the middle of a famine, but he still wants to come through Rome, and he hopes to see you as in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. You have received this letter. I'm coming home for a furlough. I'd love to see you before I return and to be helped back to where I'm going. It's a missionary support letter. Look what he goes on to say in verse 28. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them the, the giving of the offering at Jerusalem and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. He wants to leave for Spain by way of them. Spain has not been reaching the gospel. Paul wants to go there. He wants to come to Rome to encourage them, for them to encourage him, and so they can support him to go to Spain and make the gospel known. Sadly, I think Paul's letter to Rome is often read and taught without proper attention to this aspect of the nature of the letter. We often come to Romans and find it nearly impossible, it probably is impossible, to sound the depth of Paul's theology here. Paul ends it with, you know, for by him and through him and to him are all things. Amen. That's how he ends that entire section. Who can know the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given to him that he should be repaid. That's how he ends Romans 11. And in our worthy effort to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church through Paul regarding matters like propitiation, in other words, God's being satisfied, his wrath being satisfied against our sin, or justification, our being forgiven our sins and declared righteous, or sanctification, our Being declared saints and progressively growing in Christ. Or our glorification, the end of our sanctification, we're finally with Him and all that we have been declared to be. Or our election, God's choosing us in Christ before the foundation of the world. In focusing on all of that, we can often underemphasize an important aspect of this letter to Paul. Paul's a missionary to the nations. And in the course of encouraging the church at Rome, he also hopes for their help in furthering his missionary enterprise. This missionary calling is what Christ has given to Paul. And he rejoices in his great honor to make Jesus known. Now, in an effort to look a little bit more at Paul's missionary calling, I want to spend a little bit of time looking at three truths that form the basis of Paul's joy in making Christ known to all nations. Here's what they are. First, the responsibility of gospel privilege. Second, the necessity of gospel preachers. And third, the global ambition of gospel proclamation. I'll rename those in a minute. But let's look first at the responsibility of gospel privilege. The responsibility of gospel privilege. Look back at Romans chapter 1 and verse 14. And I picked the word gospel privilege to be intentionally provocative in our day. Look at chapter 1, Romans chapter 1 and verse 14. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians. Incidentally, um, barbarians would be those largely in northern Europe. That's an onomatopoeia. Barbarian, that word is an onomatopoeia. It's one of the best words in English language to say, onomatopoeia, right? What is an onomatopoeia? It means that the word is basically a word that's been given to describe something about the people in a specific way. It says its own name, if you will. And so um, they called them barbarians because when they heard those northern Europeans speaking, if you will, middle European speaking, all what they heard was bar, 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 bar. So they said barbarians, right? To the Greeks and the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also, are in Rome... Now notice what Paul is under obligation to those folks, the Greeks and the barbarians, the wise and the foolish. I'm under obligation. I'm under obligation. In the King James Version, I think actually a little bit, maybe better translation, I'm a debtor. I'm indebted both to Greeks and the barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. Paul is obligated. He is indebted to them. Now why is Paul a debtor? To Greeks and barbarians, wise and foolish. Why is Paul under obligation to them? Well, he's under obligation because God has commanded and commissioned him first. I mean, look at Romans 1:1. 1, 1. Paul, a doulos, a servant, a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. He's under obligation because God has commanded him to this. He's commissioned him to this. In this sense, the whole church is under obligation or a debtor. Not because we're all apostles, but because the church is built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles, Ephesians 2.20. And that charge originally given to the, to the apostles in the Great Commission is passed to the church. But I think it goes further than just the fact that we're called and commissioned to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. I think Paul understands that he has something other people need. He has the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is a debtor in that he knows the grace of God that others do not know. He is the chief of sinners, and Christ saved him. He shares the common humanity with everybody else. He shares... The common sin of everyone else. He shares the common condemnation under God's holy justice of everyone else. What he doesn't share with everyone else is that he knows the gospel and he's saved. And now the love of Christ toward him compels him, indebts him to others. That's why we read what we read in Romans one sixteen. And 17, what does he say? For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Not ashamed as a litotus. It's a way of saying something very positive in an, an underemphasized sort of way. So it's, you know, I've told you guys this before. If my wife comes in and says, how do I look in this outfit? And I say, not bad. She knows I mean really good, right? Get it? I'm not ashamed. I'm proud of the gospel. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it. What's it? The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in what? In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. For as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now, why is the gospel the power of God for salvation? Because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, the righteousness that we don't have, but God gives to us through faith in Christ. How do I know that? Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, for God has made it plain to the things that have been made. But, as he goes on to say in verse 23 and then verse 25, we've exchanged the truth about God for a lie. We have worshipped the creature rather than the creator who's forever blessed. Amen. We need the righteousness of God and the gospel, because we have no righteousness of our own, and we're under God's just condemnation. That's why He'll go on in verse, or chapter three and verse nine, and ten and following, and say, "For all are under sin. All are we Jews any better off? No. For I've already said both Jews and Greeks are under sin. We're all under sin. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one is good. No one seeks for God." Together they've become worthless. And then goes on to say that before God's bar of justice, verse 20 and 21 of chapter 3, or 20 of chapter 3, every mouth will be stopped. Every mouth. What's going to happen when you stand before God? Your mouth is going to be shut when you see him in his holiness. You're going to have nothing about you to hold up in front of him and say, look at how good I am. Look at what I've done. In and of yourself, only condemnation. Only wickedness. You may not believe that about yourself in and of yourself, but listen, when you see the holiness of God, you will. You will. That's why we need the gospel. That's why Paul goes on in verse 21 of Romans 3 and says, but now the righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law, though the law bears witness to it, the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but God, to sum up, sent his son Jesus Christ to save you. The gospel is the power of God and everyone needs to hear the good news. Everyone. Every man will stand before God On that day, it has been appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. So the only hope is salvation in Christ. And Paul understands that he has been graced with this gospel, and he wants others to know it. You know, we're in an era when many evangelical leaders are shouting from the rooftops about white privilege. They are consumed with the notion That the church is obligated to work for a definition of justice whereby all people have equal outcomes. In the midst of this debate, I want to throw a concern out there. While pastors are busy attempting to be sociologists and cultural anthropologists and social justice advocates in an effort to bring equal outcomes in secular matters, we're ignoring the weightiest lack of equality known to man. If equality is to be the ultimate measure of our ethics, then why are we ignoring the lack of equal opportunity to the salvation found in Christ alone? There are over 3,100 people groups who have zero gospel witness. None. They have no person talking about Jesus, no believers, no churches, no materials about the gospel in their language. They don't have the Bible in the language. None. They have no access to the gospel at all. That means sharing our common humanity, sharing our common sin. They also share our common judgment under God's holy justice. These people have no access to to the saving gospel of Jesus Christ and are condemned in their sin. And listen, they face much worse things than societal injustice. They face the justice of God. So if we want to talk about a lack of equal opportunity or a lack of equal access or if we want to talk about privilege. Let's start talking about our privilege. We know the gospel. They don't. If we've decided that equality is the great virtue, then why aren't pastors shouting this inequality from the rooftops? If you want to shout about what Christ shouts about and whisper about what he whispers about, then we should be shouting about this. We should be shouting about our gospel privilege and our gospel indebtedness. We're burning so much energy on these perceived secular injustices. And don't get me wrong, there are real injustices out there. The problem with this is it leads us to completely misdiagnose the fundamental problem with man. Secular sociology and psychology and politics all seek to manage the flesh. It's all they can do. Do we really believe that man is flesh? Do we really believe that there's an antithesis between the spirit and And the flesh. The Spirit is not of the flesh. Do we really believe what Romans 8, for example, says? Listen to Romans 8 and verse 5. Listen to what Paul says. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God for it does not submit to God's law. Now catch this. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Here's the sad reality of the social justice movement. They've misdiagnosed the problem. They've misdiagnosed the solution. Your greatest problem is not that you're a victim of some societal injustice, though you may be. You may be. Your greatest problem is that you're of the flesh. A wicked, law breaking offender against our holy God who's dead in your sins and who cannot please God. The primary injustice in the world is committed by you. Do you hear that? When you break God's law. Your great need is not for the church to get distracted in attempts to reorganize the society to help you overcome the injustice committed against you. Your greatest need is for the church to remain vigilantly committed to proclaiming the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ alone. You need to know that Jesus satisfied the justice of God for your sins. You need to know that. He satisfied the precept and the penalty of God's law for you. And he graciously offers you salvation and life in his name. You need to hear that message and you need the spirit to regenerate you, to give you life, to make you born again so that you believe and are saved. You need that. That's what your neighbor needs to hear. That's what the nations need to hear. Do we really believe Do we really believe that apart from this gospel message being preached and the Spirit applying it, that men will remain dead in their sins and damned by the righteous justice of God? Do we really believe that? If so, does that affect how we pray? You know, Spurgeon in his book, The Soul Winner, addressing Sunday school teachers in his church, talked about, preaching the word to them, teaching them the Bible, et cetera, and praying for them. And he asked, do you really believe these children of the flesh and not of the spirit? They cannot please God. They cannot keep God's law, that they need to be born again, that they need a new life, that they need to know the gospel. Do you really believe that? If so, do you pray like Elijah prayed for the widow's dead son? Remember Elijah with the widow's dead son? The widow's son dies Elijah casts himself upon the son and pleads with God to give him life. And Spurgeon says, do you pray for the kids that way? They're every bit as spiritually dead as that boy was physically dead. Do you plead with the Lord to save them? Parents, um, I don't care how well you discipline your children, how faithful and biblically well you think you handled everything. <laughs> the main thing I w- I, I'm learning the more my kids get older and now go off to be adults and have their own freedom the more the, the mirage that I had at control goes away right and, and I come back to the did I plead with the Lord enough for them Do we do that for our neighbors or our co-workers or our friends? Do we do that for the nations? Do we do that? Do we really see that they're dead in their sins, they're blind, they're deaf? Do we plead with the Lord to give them life? Do we beseech the Lord to raise up workers for the harvest to make Christ known? Christ commands us to pray that. Do we pray for it? If so, then we know the only hope is the preaching of the gospel, which leads to my second point, which will be shorter, the necessity of gospel preachers. Look at chapter Romans chapter 10 and verse 13. I'll try to move these last two points relatively quickly. Romans 10 and verse 13. I'll, I'll tell you what it is while you're turning there. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 13. But how can they call on him In whom they've not believed. And how can they believe in him. Of whom they've never heard. And how can they hear. Unless someone preaches to them. And how can they preach. Unless they're sent. Thus it's written. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. Listen. How can someone call on the Lord if they've not believed in him? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Great. How can they call on him if they haven't believed in him? How can they believe in him if they haven't heard? How can they hear if someone doesn't preach? Gospel preachers are necessary. Necessary. That's what Paul's arguing. He is saying that ordinarily, the only means of someone trusting in Christ is because someone else preaches the gospel to them. But let's take a step further. How can they preach unless they're sent? The church must send these preachers, these missionaries, these ambassadors of the gospel. We must send missionaries to take the gospel where it has not been heard. Now notice he uses there how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. He uses Isaiah 52.7. That passage is first about Jesus. He's the one with the beautiful feet who brings the good news the Messiah, the servant of God, and then is applied to his ambassadors. Can there be a greater honor than to stand in the stead of our glorious mediator? Is there a greater responsibility than holding forth the word of God to the people of God, God making his appeal through us be reconciled to God through Christ? But it's not enough to raise up preachers. They must be sent. Sent by who? Ultimately by the head of the church, Jesus Christ. As his spirit raises up people and through his church sends them out. We raise up preachers here and we send them out to saturate our cities with the gospel. We raise up missionaries and we send them to the peoples who've never heard the gospel. And our sending is not limited to our own country or state or city. Paul had concern for every people group on the earth. He had that concern because Jesus did. The Father did. The Holy Spirit did. I should say it in the case of the Trinity, did and do have that concern. Jesus commanded the apostles to go to every people group. That's not limited, like I said, to geopolitical borders. We see evidence of that in Revelation in the great throne room where every tribe and tongue and nation are singing glory to the Lamb who was slain. That leads to the third point, the global ambition of gospel proclamation. Look at Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15, the global ambition of gospel proclamation. Paul has been telling them that he's satisfied with the church at Rome. He thinks they're doing quite well, um, and therefore he hasn't been in a hurry to get there. Though he would like to come, tell them of all that Christ has done through him by the Spirit. Then in verse 18, he says, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ, Romans 15 verse 18, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, to bring the Gentiles, that's the non-Jews, to obedience. Obedience of faith, I would say, by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Listen to what Paul's claim here is. I have fulfilled the ministry of preaching the gospel from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. That's a circular pattern. Illyricum would be modern-day southern Albania. This is a massive swath of geography with towns and hamlets and cities and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people. And Paul says, I have fulfilled the gospel ministry of pro- proclaiming this word from Jerusalem all the way around to Now, Now look what he goes on to say in verse 23. Drop to verse 23. But now... Since I no longer have any room for work in these regions. From Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. No more room for work in these regions. And since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. Paul has fulfilled his ministry, and now he has no more room in these regions. Now how can that be? What percentage of that population was Christian at that point? Less than 1%. Less than 1%, a fraction of a percent, were believing in the Lord Jesus at that point. So how can his work be done? Hundreds of thousands of people in those areas do not know Christ, yet Paul says, there's no more room for me here. Now, now think, think about this. I'm a pastor of a church in Bakersfield. 525,000-something people in this area, if you include the unincorporated and incorporated areas of Bakersfield. According to the American Religious Data Archives, roughly 12 to 13 percent are professing evangelicals and members of professing evangelical churches. Now, let's be really generous. I've seen the list of those churches that are included in evangelical churches. I'll be really generous and call them all evangelical churches. And that is an act of generosity if you saw the list. 12 to 13 percent. That means that in Bakersfield, and our surrounding unincorporated areas, roughly 87% of the people do not know Jesus Christ. Do not know Jesus Christ. Now I want you to stop and consider that for a minute. Of 525,000 people, right? That means maybe 60,000 or so know the Lord. And 460,000 or so, don't. Now, if I stood in this pulpit and said, no more room for gospel work for me, you'd say, you all have lost your mind. Have you even walked around town at all? Do you know anybody outside the people in your church? So how can Paul say that? How can he say that? Because of Paul's missionary work, he can say that. Because of the calling that the Lord had laid on him. Look at verse 20. And thus, verse 20, I make it my ambition, my ambition, my aim, I strive for, my honor, so all the way to translate that, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. Not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have Never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Paul has an ambition or an aim. He's striving for something. There's something he considers to be his honor. What is it? To preach Christ where he has never been named, to lay a new foundation. He has planted churches in all those areas from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. In other words, the gospel has been preached there. There are believers there, and the foundation of a church has been laid. There are church plants there. And so Paul's assumption is those church plants can now reach those people. But I want to go somewhere and lay a foundation where one has never been laid. Paul will talk about this in 1 Corinthians 3 with regard to his relationship to Apollos. "'I sowed, Apollos watered, God gave the growth.'" Paul sees himself as someone who lays a new foundation, not someone who builds on another foundation. Listen, as a pastor in Bakersfield, I'm a pastor who builds on the foundation of another. Rob and Beth, I'll leave their names off, who we sent to Indonesia, they're there to lay a new foundation to make Christ known where he's never been known. Paul assumes those churches can reach their areas. There's no more room for me here because the foundation of the gospel has been laid and that the gospel has been preached and churches have been planted. And Paul wants to reach the unreached peoples of the world. Specifically, he wants to go to Spain. What's interesting about the word ambition is that it can also be translated something like he has the honor of preaching the gospel where it's never been preached. He's seeking that honor. Paul is seeking a holy honor or ambition. This holy ambition is not a worldly ambition. It's a seeking to be honored by God, not by men. The honor of suffering for the cause. When Paul says, for example, in Colossians 24, more than that, I rejoice in my sufferings for I'm filling up in my flesh the afflictions that are lacking in Christ for the sake of his body, the church. It's that kind of honor of suffering for the cause, of bearing in our bodies the the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his church. I'm going to end with, briefly, by telling you about a friend of mine who had that honor and his sons who've had that honor, Brad Buzer. Many of you know him. He and I and some others had the privilege of starting Radius together. But Brad moved into a formally cannibalistic tribe and it stopped cannibalism just before he came because the, the Papua New Guinea government had shut it down. Um, It wasn't because of ethical convictions, but the government had shut it down before he arrived. He arrived in 1979 in this tribe called the Atedi. He lived with them for 20 years. He suffered immensely. He suffered with loneliness. In fact, for the first several years, he could only play with children because the adult men wouldn't talk to him because his language wasn't strong enough. He suffered from diseases, not only he but his, he did, but his wife and his kids. They suffered with loss. The location they were in at the time required them to send their kids to boarding school for much of the year, each and every year of their life as children. He lost most of the worldly joy that we all come to expect. Further, all three of his sons have gone to other people groups. The third son identifying one, one to the BM, one to the Yembi Yembi, and now the third one's identifying a people group. This means he lost the privilege not only of his son's company as children, but as adults. And he's lost the privilege of really knowing his grandkids most of their lives. Now I ask him how he endures all that loss. That's a lot of loss to suffer, folks. I Asked him how does he endure it. He replied that he suffers that loss for the honor of standing before the Lord and presenting the Yetedi Church to him. He said, I get to stand before the Lord and say, here's the Yetedi Church. Here's how my life was spent. Here's the Yembe Yembe Church. Here's the Church at BM. Here's how the life of my boys was spent. That's his joy and his crown. What more godly and holy ambition and honor could there be? Accolades from your peers and community in the world are rubbish in comparison. Rubbish. Raising your children and grandchildren are nothing in comparison to that honor. I have a holy ambition. Our elders have a holy ambition. Our deacons have a holy ambition. The Lord will raise up many such people through the ministry that he does here through Sovereign Grace. Christ has come to save people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And Paul was ambitious to have the honor of carrying that gospel word to the world and to plant churches where Jesus had never been named. And he was confident that he wouldn't be put to shame in seeking his glory here. The Lord has been pleased to to raise up missionaries and send missionaries, support missionaries from our church. And what I guess I'm saying is, it's our prayer that the Lord would be pleased to use our local church to send even more. For we have glorious good news in Jesus that the world needs to hear. Let me pray. Father, we ask that your name could be made known in all the earth as the gospel of your son Jesus Christ is proclaimed, as your spirit goes to work in the hearts and minds of men through that gospel word to save. We pray, Father, that we as a church would feel the weight, the debt, The obligation of knowing the gospel, being saved, that the love of Christ would compel us to send, to go, to support, to pray, so that people would be saved, so that your Son would be exalted in all the earth. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.